Hello, all, and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, your weekly look at the IT News of the Week. I'm your host, Rich Straffolino. I'm an editor at Gestalt IT. Joining me from across this great land of ours is the one, the only, the networking nerd himself, Tom Hollingsworth. Tom, welcome to the show. Hello, Rich. Hello, waving hands. I'm Hello. happy to be here. Yes. Uh... It's, it's, it's fun time. <laughs> Great time. It is. It's truly, it it, uh, it uh, kind of uh, flattens the curve on hump day. So we are going to get it started here with a little something we like to call news or not. This is where just too much news uh, to cover in full discussion detail. Need Tom's take to see if this is in fact newsy or not. First story up, a little bit of weirdness out of the gaming world that I, we just got to talk about a little bit. The Japanese gaming magazine Famitsu, everyone's favorite gaming magazine, uh, reports According to sources, Sega is working on a fog computing initiative that would use idle arcade machines to distribute cloud gaming service in Japan. Sega currently operates dozens of game centers in Japan in major population centers, as well as arcade cabinets in third-party centers. These machines are already connected to the internet through Sega's uh, all.net platform, which is used for things like uh, sharing scores and profiles. So there is some connectivity already built into these machines. Theoretically, they're built for relatively modern graphics. So, Tom, Sega's fog computing in Japan, news or not? Uh, not really news. Uh, more news that there are arcades in Japan because I thought those were pretty much dead. Also, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't say Sega. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll go with Sega. Ah, there uh, you go. Yeah, uh, the the arcade scene uh, booming, at least pre-COVID times, uh, in Japan, and specifically like Sega franchises, uh, still going strong there. So we will see if they can turn that around. It's from the reporting um, in uh, Ars Technica, I was seeing it is still in early uh, planning stage. Interesting idea, though. Uh, next up here, a little bit uh, uh, an interesting idea that went a little bit sideways, it seemed. The Brave browser announced recently that it reached 15.4 million monthly active users in May. This is, uh, if you're not familiar with Brave browser, it's based on Chrome, but it has uh, a lot of privacy-centric features as well as uh, kind of cryptocurrency. It has a, an ad scheme, basically, where you can earn like these tokens for viewing their specific ads and stuff like that while maintaining your privacy. They also reported that daily active users reached 5.3 million, uh, so some impressive growth in a short time for Brave. But the browser controversy, Twitter user Yannick Eckel noticed that when visiting cryptocurrency exchange Binance in the Brave browser, the browser automatically redirected to an affiliate version of the URL, not the one that he typed, and a review of the browser's code on GitHub by various users found similar redirects for the exchanges Ledger, Trezor, and Coinbase, the biggest one out there, or at least the one you probably most likely have heard about. According to Brave CEO Brendan Eich, the redirect has since been removed, and he promised to never revise typed-in domains again, which seems like something you shouldn't have to say at all. According to Ike, the redirects never revealed any user information, but they did, you know, Brave did receive a kickback uh, because people were using these affiliate links. Tom, news or not? This isn't news because this is not the first time Brave's been caught doing this. Originally, they had been caught doing it with other affiliate linkable things like Amazon links and shopping stuff. Um, yes, I get that what they were trying to do was offer a platform that would strip out privacy concerns. What I didn't want was for them to use my information to make money off of it. Yeah, you're not selling my information, but you're mangling a bunch of other stuff. Come on, guys, really? Well, and all they would need to do is put a checkbox in like the settings and say, hey, yeah. help Brave out, autofill with these affiliate links for, you know, and select which exchanges you want to use that for. I really don't think the community likes the browser, likes crypto. I don't see like how they wouldn't also get a benefit from doing that. Yeah, and that's the thing. If you ask me that question, I would do it. I would help you out. But there are times when I don't want to have an affiliate link for something, or there's times when I'm trying not to do something very specific. 
assuming that you want me to help you with everything is the first step to being the same kind of overlord that everybody else thinks that the other browsers are. All right, next up here in what is Dead May Never Die news, uh, Google Plus, if you remember, was shut down for consumers back in April 2019. However, the G Suite version for businesses has remained online. Google also announced around the time of that consumer shutdown that Google Plus would eventually be rebranded as Google Currents, which I think at one point was a newsreader that they had out there and then, surprise, they killed. Over the past several months, a beta of Google Currents with a redesigned look has been available to administrators to try out. Google now says that Google Currents will launch for all G Suite customers on July 6th. All Google Plus content and users will be automatically moved over with plus.google.com links still working. Clearly, someone is using this to justify the money for the rebrand here, Tom. News or not? Was Google Plus ever news? I don't care what you call it. <laughs> okay. It was... It was back in the day, Tom. Don't don't be snarky with hindsight being twenty twenty. Uh, but point point well taken. Uh, next up here, uh, interesting news out of Germany and France. They kicked off the Gaia X Cloud project, which aims to improve European data sovereignty. The project has twenty two members at launch, including SAP, Siemens, and Deutsche Telekom, along with another of uh, of, um, of other European firms, uh, large firms, who pledged to fund the Gaia X X Foundation, which will serve as a repository of existing services that buyers can search for or choose based on where the servers are located. So really kind of going heavy on that data sovereignty thing. Among other things, members are required to inform customers if data becomes subject to laws like the Cloud Act uh, that uh, essentially allows U.S. firms to kind of get access into uh, uh, non-U.S. data centers. U.S.-based public clouds are welcome to join if they agree to abide by all of Gaia-X's principles, so probably not anytime soon. Uh, Europe getting more serious about data sovereignty. News or not here, Tom? It's news because they finally give it up on Amazon and Azure. And they're like, you know what? We're just going to do things our way. And we're not going to let you just give us lip service. We're actually going to hold your feet to the fire. I fully expect we're going to see something where, you know, AWS and Azure are the dominant cloud partners for everybody who's not China or Europe very soon. China has Alibaba Cloud and their own homegrown stuff. And Europe will just have stuff that has data sovereignty issues solved. And, and to be clear, this isn't like an EU initiative. It's it's France and Germany saying, "Hey, we're gonna you know we're gonna use these firms that are part of this nonprofit essentially this consortium uh, for a lot of our cloud services and stuff like that." Interesting that it is not a purely top down. I think we're very familiar with that uh, in the US, or at least that's the stereotype maybe of a lot of European initiatives. Uh, we will see though if it does uh, get broader traction across the EU and uh, with uh, with state agencies. Mm-hmm. Next up here in cyber attack news, Honda announced that a cyber attack forced it to suspend global production on Tuesday after a virus hit the company's internal servers on Monday morning in Tokyo. Tuesday, Honda staff were advised not to access their work computers and to take paid leave if possible. Production at all Honda U.S. plants was halted on Monday with factories in Japan affected after the group's car inspection system was attacked. Honda says much of its operations have resumed and the company doesn't believe the cyber attack was related to decreased security due to teleworking. Obviously, you know, uh, large scale cyber attacks, unfortunately, have kind of become the norm here, uh, Tom. But news or not, kind of the scale that it affected Honda. So uh, I was listening to the Risky Business podcast this morning, and uh, they mentioned that this is just one of like six or seven major cyber attacks that have all come out in the last week. Uh, Basically, Mm -hmm. everyone who was doing ransomware stuff went on vacation for a couple of weeks and then they came back like, man, we got to get back to business. (laughs) And so unfortunately, Honda got smacked by this. But this is the problem that we're starting to see as these attacks become more sophisticated and more targeted. They're going to slip past all of those defenses that we've put in place. So we start have to we're going to have to start figuring out how to fix this from a functional level, like like lower than just stopping it. 
We have to mm -hmm. build networks so this couldn't happen. Think about something like a zero trust networking model with a micro segmentation core. Could that have stopped us? I don't know, but it definitely couldn't have made it worse. Maybe one thing that uh, might have helped out was something that Aruba just announced, the Aruba Edge Services Platform, which uses machine learning to leverage data from the network, users, and devices to improve services. This includes identifying root cause issues or uh, disruptions with a claimed 95% accuracy. That's a very interesting number. All remediating issues, monitoring user experience, and tuning, this is not my language, this is tuning the network to avoid issues in the first place. I'm very curious what network admins think about that. ESP puts all switching, Wi-Fi, and SD-WAN environments under the Aruba uh, Central Cloud Console, uh, perhaps a single pane of glass, and uses a zero-trust security framework, uh, Tom, as you were alluding to. Aruba ESP is available as a service in the cloud or on-premises, as a managed service through Aruba Partners, or by a network as a service through H. PE like uh, Aruba's uh, corporate uh, partner there, our corporate overlord, I guess. Uh, news or not here, Tom, uh, on Aruba ESP. So I think it's news because it's a great way to collect Aruba's um, technologies into one portfolio and offer it. Uh, one of the things that I specifically talked about with their team was that they're pulling in some of the net insights uh, data, which was formerly known as Raza, and they're using it to build a better AI uh, profile for your network. Um, you may have heard that there's another company doing this, MIST Systems, which got acquired by Juniper. I'm interested to see how they're going to differentiate between these two. And you'll get to find out more. So I'll be live blogging uh, Partha's keynote uh, from Aruba Atmosphere here in just about 20 minutes. So if you want to head over to GeshaltIT.com, you can watch that. And also starting tomorrow at TechFieldDay.com, we're going to go deep into all of the technologies that make up ESP with a group of great wireless and networking delegates and some of the, the highlight presenters from Aruba Atmosphere. You're not going to want to miss that. So head over to TechFieldDay.com starting tomorrow around 9.30 a.m. Pacific time, and you'll get a key look at that. And one of the things I think is really interesting with HPE's overall approach, I don't know how involved, what, I don't know the exact relationship between HPE, Aruba, how much, you know, cross strategizing. I'm assuming there's, there's obviously some, they're, they're offering it as a green like offering, um, but that they're on the networking and now the storage side, they're kind of having a similar approach of being like, hey, we have all this data from customers that we can anonymize, but then use to improve services. Uh, and they've, they've made acquisitions essentially. Um, to enable both of those with uh, Nimble Storage and now Aruba. Um, so an interesting kind of overall strategy. They're not the only ones doing that, but I'm seeing them now doing it in multiple product categories, which I think is an interesting trend, part of their whole everything as a service uh, kind of solution. Uh, okay, first up here for our full uh, discussion segment here, maybe go a little bit more in depth. Uh, Amazon at Slack recently announced a new partnership. Under the deal, Amazon will offer all employees access to Slack's workplace collaboration tools. Previously, uh, small teams had been able to use them, but it had hadn't been a corporate-wide thing. Keep in mind, Amazon has about 830,000 employees, so this would be a bigger win than even IBM uh, for that. Uh, meanwhile, Slack will migrate its voice and video calling features to use Amazon's Chime platform on the back end. Both of those are kind of, uh, uh, neither have like the best uh, penetration. I think everyone kind of avoids Slack's tools, and Chime is kind of an interesting service with a bad UI that Amazon has kind of had out there for a while. So perhaps, uh, uh, you know, together they are better. In addition, AWS will work to better integrate services like AWS Chatbot and Amazon AppFlow into Slack. Big uh, partnership for the two of them. But my question is, Tom, is this setting the stage for maybe like an Amazon uh, Slack acquisition down the road? I wouldn't be surprised if that doesn't happen. I mean, Jeff Bezos is sitting on $70 bajillion and he needs something to do with it other than launch rockets. Um, this is the thing. Amazon Chime was the, the 
least greatest service that you probably never heard of except for a random TechCrunch <laughs> article. Um, I, I honestly thought at first they were just going to jettison the whole damn thing and, and use Slack everywhere. It sounds like they're, they're, they've at least acknowledged that there are some things they can take from it. But yeah, I don't see this being a bolt-on situation for long. I see there being a lot of deep integration into the, the VoIP and video calling side of things because obviously Zoom is kicking everybody's ass right now. And then what I expect to happen in oh, six months is basically there'll be like some kind of a co-branding leading to eventually, oh, look, we bought the whole team. And I could even see this, you know, uh, I mean, it's no secret that Amazon has very successfully uh, uh, created a prime bundle for consumers where they merge together a bunch of services. You know, they're not just competing with Zoom. They're also, you know, they're also competing with Microsoft is the big player here, right? That's that's kind of what Slack is. The, the challenge that Slack has is that uh they can't, or not that they can't, Microsoft has a bundled play where you're already paying for all these other services. Oh, COVID-19, spin up, you know, Microsoft Teams that you're already paying a lot of instances. All of a sudden you get that additional functionality. Slack has a harder time with that. In fact, their earnings uh, last week were essentially showing, yes, they've grown, but nowhere near as much as Zoom, Teams, and a lot of other productivity apps have grown recently. Uh, so I could see maybe Amazon bundling this in, especially, hey, you're already on AWS. We'll do a, a you know, a sweetheart deal with you uh, for our productivity prime bundle, for lack of a better term. I'm sure there's something called prime for business, which involves business shipping. That's not what I'm thinking of, but makes a lot, a lot of sense to me. We will see. Um, or they'd just be happy that Slack exclusively uses AWS as their back end and they just, you know, make all the cash that way like, like they usually do. Next up here in other uh, or in in actual acquisition news, not uh, not speculative. NetApp announced it intends to acquire the Israeli cloud organization uh, uh, Spot.io. I'm just going to call them Spot from now on in a deal worth 450 million dollars. I guess it doesn't really matter what they call them; they've been subsumed into NetApp. This uh, brings Spot's cloud optimization as a service offering into NetApp's fold. The solution uses continuous monitoring to look at cloud availability and performance, as well as looking at customer service costs and building the best real-time instances for them to use. NetApp has been on this data tra or this transition into a data company now for a few years. Tom, how do you see this fitting into that strategy? It seems uh, maybe coming from an existing business perspective as opposed to getting new customers. Yeah, this is all about trying to get the people who are sticking with you to have fewer lower costs so that you can continue to provide this as a service. I mean... When you look at the, the the way that this is being deployed elsewhere, you feed it a bunch of, of uh, parameters that you need. You know, I want this data to be stored with this reachability you know, recovery point objective, and then I mm -hmm. want to be able to store it as cheaply as possible. And the tool goes out and finds the cheapest spot instances that you can and does a whole bunch of other stuff, which is great if you're nickeling and diming yourself. What NetApp needs to do is they need to prove that what they're actually trying to do is save money and not cut corners because ultimately that's what ends up happening with these tools is if your management thinks, oh, well, we saved, you know, 25% last month on this. Well, can we save, you know, 25% more this month? They tighten the algorithms and eventually those recovery point objectives become untenable because now all you're doing is booting the cheapest instances you can find to store your data. And that is nowhere near enterprise grade. Watching NetApp manage this transition, you know, I think really this kicked off in a lot of ways with their green cloud acquisition now. I think that's almost three years ago now. And that was a really interesting attempt by them to uh, position themselves in the cloud, uh, kind of approaching those cloud native customers that have probably never even heard of NetApp or, or were never even looking at any kind of NetApp services and being like, and making that pitch of, okay, here's why you need enterprise grade 
uh, data services, right? Uh, for your for your you know your small little agile startup and stuff like that, and making that pitch, I think fairly successfully. It, it's been it's been a, a a transition for them to kind of nuance that message to to really reach that audience. And they're working on it. This is definitely yeah, I agree, Tom. Uh, a, a hey, you're you're a long time data customer. You're now trying to use all this cloud stuff that we've have out there, and here's another tool in our tool belt here that'll make this easier and make um you know uh any any way you can uh, reduce or or maybe it. To your point, it doesn't actually make the pricing more stable, but it adds in some interesting cost savings that I think is interesting long term for them. Uh, next up here, uh, and uh, I guess finally here on the rundown, an interesting story from IBM. Uh, they said in a letter to members of Congress that they are exiting the general purpose facial recognition business. CEO Arvind Krishna said in the letter, IBM no longer offers general purpose IBM facial recognition or analysis software. IBM firmly opposes and will not condone uses of any technology, including facial recognition technology, offered by other vendors for mass surveillance, racial profiling, violation of basic human rights and freedoms, or any purpose which is not consistent with the values and principles of trust and transparency. An IBM rep told Axios the company spent months on this decision and it's been communicated with customers, although it will support existing clients. You know, Tom, this could be taken any number of ways. I guess, how are you reading this? You could see this as the, hey, um, you know, Facial recognition has a lot of disturbing uh, uh, implications, uh, especially when you look at, you know, backing data sets and how those are, you know, kind of uh, uh, furthering uh, implicit biases that we've already had. Uh, you could also say, hey, this is a really great week to announce this. They get a PR hit for maybe something that wasn't a huge business for them. Where do you see this kind of lying? So if they're being honest and sincere and saying that they're dumping this because there are too many unanswered questions, bravo to IBM for taking a stand and kind of deciding that they're going to make the world a better place. However, if this is really just a convenient exercise and dumping it because they are not making any money off of it and they're not even the fifth name that comes up when you think of facial recognition, that's not good. So here's the thing. Um, I don't even know who's in charge over there anymore. Is it still Jenny or did somebody else move on? Uh, no, it's right. It's the red hat guy. Sorry. Um, <laughs> too, too many news stories this year. Um, here's the thing, guys, if you're watching, because I know you are and you're big fans of the show, do some soul searching. All right. Do not try to get ahead of the wave and, and look like a supporter when you're actually not a supporter. You're just taking advantage of what's going on. Be honest and sincere. If you're dumping this because it was a bad business, then say that. Maybe that will be the bigger thing for people going, wow, we always hear about how people are using facial recognition. But if nobody's buying it from these guys, are they really buying it from anybody else? Don't attach yourself to current events. Just like, you know, we had that question that we had to ask ourselves last week here at Gestalt IT. How much do we need to be involved in this? And one of the things that we decided was we need to kind of pause the sharing of what we're doing because we don't want to contribute to the problem. And so we did. If you're IBM, don't contribute to the problem by trying to attach yourself to something that you don't really believe in. But if you do really believe in it, yeah, and th then that's what you need to tell us. Yeah. And what, what I think is interesting is in the broader, you know, context when we're looking at, you know, tech companies and facial recognition, you know, Microsoft has been very vocal um, about trying to get ahead, at least of a lot of the regulatory headwinds that seem like they're coming down the road for facial recognition and really, uh, um, you know, essentially asking for the, the industry to be regulated uh, for, for quite a while now. And I think maybe uh, we will see other companies, um, you know, if that regulation is not forthcoming or doesn't appear to be forthcoming, 
also saying, hey, it, we don't want to be the for whatever reason, whether it's we want to be a force for not evil or we don't want to be the, the company that the regulatory hammer gets thrown down after we've been in this business for five, 10 years or something like that. Um, you know, we, we're, we're going to get out of this until there is more there's more certainty. Maybe that's the middle position is that, you know, uh, uh, whether you want to get into the societal implications of uh, biased data sets uh, that are used to train facial recognitions or something like that. There is there is so much uncertainty about where the regulatory landscape is going that as a business, it is in your maybe in your best interest to not pursue that to, uh, you know, to not make that a larger business unit because you don't know which way it's going to go and what kind of liability that could be. Uh, ultimately, I, you know, I, I do hope that, you know, this is this is an accurate reflection um, and that they have spent months and, and, you know, some time talking about this and done some soul searching about that. The timing of it is a little odd, uh, I will admit, but you don't shut down a business unit or, or a, a, you know, a, a team like that, I think, overnight um, just to score uh, a cheap PR win um, like that. I have to think that even, you know, as as cynical as I want to be, I'm hoping that's that's not the case. But it's certainly a big announcement for IBM and especially kind of uh, also in, in terms of a larger trend, kind of a lot of the not that facial recognition was like this signature thing that their cognitive services was all about, but kind of a further uh, refutation that that was, you know, going to be, quote unquote, the future of that company. And really that, you know, this is basically uh, IBM dash Red Hat uh, now as terms of where the company is going in the future. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm glad somebody is there making decisions and, and going on this, but, but honestly, you have to prove it now. You, you've you've talked the talk. It's time to walk the walk. And mm -hmm. if this is just a one-off, then I'll know where you stand. But if this is the beginning of a bigger movement of you guys, um, you know, making the right decisions as we go along, then that's great. And I, I'll leave you with this. IBM doesn't have the best track record in this department for the last hundred years as it is. So if you guys really want to make it right, you need to make right. Well said, Tom. Well said. Well, that just about brings us to the end of the Gestalt IT Rundown for this week. Remember, we're here every Wednesday at 1230 p.m. Eastern Time, running down the IT News of the Week. You can find us on YouTube.com slash Gestalt IT video. You can find us on Facebook, Facebook.com slash Gestalt IT. I don't think we have an Instagram because, I mean, what are we going to send, share photos of storage arrays or something like that? Well, we don't have an Instagram, but Tech Field Day does. So uh, during Tech Field Day events, you can check out Tech Field Day for great presenter pictures and fun pictures of food that we eat while we're on the road. Absolutely. Whenever the road uh, shall meet us once again. Rest assured, it will. And we will be back uh, on Wednesday at 1230 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, Tom, thank you so much. Uh, can't wait to, to hear more about uh, Aruba stuff that you're going to be covering in just a little bit. Um, yep. So make sure you uh, stay tuned for that. Um, until the next time we meet from all of us here at the Gestalt IT family, here's wishing you and yours to have a super sparkly day.